It's Friday, May 17th, 2019. And from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. Well, if you visit Pax Pittsburgh office, you'll see a framed photo hanging on one of the walls. It's a scenic landscape showing a lake, and it's inscribed with a quote from a great Pennsylvanian, Ben Franklin. That quote reads, When the well's dry, we know the worth of water. And we take a pretty literal interpretation of that idea in our Watersheds program, which is all about protecting and enhancing our most vitally important natural resource, both in Pennsylvania and anywhere else on the planet. But when it comes to the actual literal value of clean water in economic terms expressed as a dollar figure, that's notoriously complicated to get a handle on. Just to ballpark that number, you have to look at all of the many sites where our water supply intersects with the built environment and the various kinds of human activity that it supports. What happens at each of those intersections ripples out through the broader economy in ways that are broadly acknowledged but little understood. You know, a dead stream is not producing the biota that the trout need, and therefore it's not producing the trout that the anglers need, therefore not producing the stays in the inns or the fees to the guys or the licensing fees that go to the state. Cleaner water is really the linchpin. New research out of southwestern Pennsylvania's Laurel Highlands is trying to map out this astronomically complex network of causes and effects using hard data. This is hardly the first attempt at a comprehensive economic impact study focusing on water resources, but this one's notably innovative, both in its methods and in the way it frames and interprets the results. We'll try to wrap our minds around the economic value of clean water on this episode of Pennsylvania Legacies. But first, let's take a look at some recent news from an area in which PEC's policy program is intensely involved. That would be the effort to rein in emissions of climate-changing methane from the natural gas supply chain. Pennsylvania, as you may know, is the nation's second largest producer of natural gas. We're also at the forefront of state-level efforts to effect tighter controls on well sites, compressors, storage tanks, pipelines, and all the places where very large leaks of methane are known to occur. Well, since 2016, states have taken a leading role in that effort, in part because the federal government has largely taken a backseat. There are signs lately, though, that that dynamic could be changing. As a very recent example, there's legislation introduced in the U.S. House this past week by Colorado Representative Diana DeGette. It directs the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to keep in place 2016 federal methane rules for new and updated oil and gas facilities. Not only would that help reinforce state-level efforts, according to Garrett Reppenhagen of the Vet Voice Foundation, it would also mean a boost for Pennsylvania's growing methane mitigation industry. This would actually be a boom in business and in jobs because this is more energy that needs to be utilized, technology that needs to be put in place, and the state it has so much energy development that this would be great for Pennsylvania. The bill also instructs the U.S. Interior Department to reinstate and update protections to reduce methane leaks, venting, and flaring of natural gas from public lands. It's important to recognize nothing likely to happen in Washington anytime soon would alleviate the need for state-level action on climate. However, Pennsylvania lawmakers inclined to support those goals might draw some reassurance from recent polling just out from Environmental Defense Fund examining Pennsylvanians' attitudes about climate action and how that maps out on their politics. That research indicates public opinion is shifting markedly in the direction of stricter state regulations. 
two-thirds of respondents in that poll took a favorable view of rules to limit carbon emissions from the Commonwealth's power plants. And nearly 8 in 10 said they would support a plan to zero out emissions from power generation entirely by 2040. The poll found majority support among Democrats, independents, and Republicans for these positions. And what's interesting is that those majorities hold up even after respondents were presented with opposing arguments, including concerns about lost jobs or higher energy costs. Of particular interest with 2020 elections on the horizon, voters said they were more likely to back political candidates who support legislative limits on carbon emissions. Just a few of many fascinating details included in the report on that survey. You can find the complete results on our website at PECPA.org. The Laurel Highlands of southwestern Pennsylvania, once a hotbed of coal mining and industrial activity, still reckoning with the legacy of an economy that went bust decades ago. Now, as the region shifts toward tourism and outdoor recreation and grapples with the more recent impacts of shale gas production, there's an increasingly urgent need to redefine traditional ideas about economic value. That's a premise of a forthcoming study funded by the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources and a consortium of conservation and community groups in the region. It reframes the concept of value in terms of so-called ecosystem services in pursuit of what the report characterizes as return on environment. I spoke with the study's lead author, Dr. Spencer Phillips of the research firm Keylog Economics, I started off by asking him to explain what those terms mean. Ecosystem services are the things that we get from nature, that nature produces, like clean water, clean air, opportunities for recreation, wildlife, food, that for the most part occur or are produced without any intervention or any expenditure by people. You know, forests filter the water, forests take up carbon dioxide, forests produce wood, streams produce fish and give us water to drink and give us water to make beer with and all all of that good stuff. And those are inputs into human well-being. They're things that we consume directly or indirectly that make us happy, and therefore we can put an economic value on. I do want to drill down on the various kind of value categories that you've identified and how you go about assigning, you know, and calculating the value. But if we can take a step back and look at the overall concept here, the return on environment, right? Policymakers and decision makers are used to thinking in terms of return on investment. This is a little bit different. Can you talk about why this frame and, and what we can learn from it? Sure. It's a bit of a new coinage. It's not one that we have used before in our studies. But if we were to define it fully, it would be return on investments in protecting, restoring, conserving various features of the environment. But that's a mouthful. So return on environment is nice. And it also, it does have a lot of conceptual connectivity to the idea of return on investment. So return on investment, you make an investment. After some period of time, you're going to start getting money back. And if you get more money back than you put in, then you're getting a return. The idea with return on the environment is that if we invest in environmental protection or in restoration of systems, or if we, in some cases, just think more clearly and holistically and completely about what the economic impacts of various production systems are, then we would be able to recognize or realize 
in the future that we are getting economic value back from what we had done to protect the environment in the past. And it's not just investment in the sense of putting some resources into a bucket and then waiting for it to generate wealth. It's also kind of acknowledging and addressing costs that you would have to face down the road if you don't take these steps or depending on the decisions you make now, there are future costs that maybe aren't accounted for always in, in decision making. Yeah, that's very true, which is why why my explanation was a little more complicated because we did look at, as we'll talk about, we did look at one action that was an action that would result in decreases in the ecosystem service value of the landscape. So in that sense, the investment would be what measures do you take to prevent those decreases, which is just as good as an investment that's going to give you an increase. It's like diet and exercise as opposed to paying for heart surgery, you know, 10 years from now. You identified several areas that are specific to the Laurel Highlands where these costs and benefits really come into play and can be quantified and calculated. What are those sort of broad categories? How did you go about choosing those areas to focus on? Sure. Let me uh, just list them quickly and then we can drill down into them because we did each one in a different way. Uh, The first, which is a very big issue here, is abandoned mine damage. So the mines that are no longer in production, but they're going to be leaching pollutants into waterways for a long time. And so there are systems for remediating that. So restoring streams through that action. We also looked at the recreational benefits of water quality improvements. We looked at, and this is the one where we were looking at the potential costs that can be avoided, unconventional natural gas development and other natural gas development. We also looked at reducing sedimentation in streams through vegetated buffer strips, expanding the use of vegetated buffer strips in in the watershed, which prevents sediment from entering streams, keeps the water cleaner. And then finally, one that's sort of in a special category because there just simply weren't sufficient data to produce what we thought would be a solid enough number is the issue of septic systems, particularly on-lot septic systems, but also public sewage treatment facilities. Well, I'm interested in the gas part of it insofar as that's one area where you hear a lot of rhetoric about economic growth and opportunity and job creation. One thing that this study does is draw attention to the fact that there's kind of more involved. What are the trade-offs? I mean, you do acknowledge that natural gas drilling brings some benefits to communities. Yeah, definitely. It definitely does. And and as you, you said, what one hears is pretty much all about the benefit when it comes to considering the costs, which is, of course, something that one normally does in the cost of any kind of business decision. Those who are promoting natural gas development are either silent about it or they claim that there are, in fact, no costs because their remediation or mitigation methods are so of so high quality that there, there couldn't possibly be any environmental impact. And so, you know, as with any business decision or any public policy decision, you do want to count those costs. And so the things that we considered is really just a portion of them. But what we did look at is the fact that each time you develop a new well or a new drilling site, a new well pad and its associated roads and pits and lagoons and gas storage tanks and so forth, you're going to be taking land that is currently you know, it could be farmland, it could be cropland, it could be pasture land. In this region, it's very often going to be forest. Those are all types of land use or land cover that are very productive for ecosystem services. And you're going to be converting those into land that is 
not at all productive for producing ecosystem services. You know, the water that falls on it is either going to run off, possibly be polluted on the way to turning into runoff. There's not going to be any habitat value. There's not going to be any aesthetic value. There's not going to be any recreational value of that, the footprint of those well pads. So what we use is an ecosystem service valuation technique and say, well, for those acres that are taken out of production, there would be some loss each year of the value of those ecosystem services. So a piece of that $3.7 billion that the ecosystem is now producing would be lost. So we we figure that the average well pad that involves conversion of forest land results in the cost of $63,200 per year in ecosystem service value. And if you look across the study region at all the pads that could be produced, it's about $62 million per year. And then there's also lost agricultural productivity would be another $58 million per year by the year 2030. That doesn't necessarily mean that you don't drill at all, but what it means is somebody should pay for those costs. And the problem, and this is why one needs to do this kind of study instead of just relying on the market to get us to the best possible solutions for society, is that natural gas development companies and we as natural gas consumers We don't pay for that damage. You know, I don't get a bill from the gas company that says, well, you use this many BTUs of energy and you've cost three people their opportunity to hunt whitetail deer this year. Therefore, you have to pay an additional amount. Or as a result of you consuming this gas or the result of the company developing the gas, three people have lost their wells and they now have to buy a bottle of water and that results in additional cost per household of some amount. So nobody pays that. And from a public policy perspective, what you would want to do is say, well, what does that well really cost? We know that the company's got to pay its workers. It's got to pay for the energy it consumes. It's got to pay for the land and, and so forth. It's got to pay royalties and whatnot. But what are the additional costs that it's not paying? And we find a way to charge that back to the company. And the result of that would be less natural gas developed, which is perfectly fine. What you want to do is come to a balance where the natural gas that we use is worth its cost to society. That sort of market equilibrium that we assume is there all the time. Exactly. In the environmental economics business, we call it internalizing the externality. So taking those costs that are external to the natural gas industry and to natural gas consumers for that matter, and making them internal to the decision making so that you can actually come up with efficient as opposed to wasteful outcomes. The more you look at these issues, the more it becomes clear, it seems, that they're so much more complex than we're used to thinking about. Could you talk about just the level of effort and energy that goes into uh, sort of crunching these numbers and following out the supply chains and the various auxiliary industries that, you know, that have a stake in these kinds of things? There's so many moving parts. How do you kind of get a handle on all of it, if that's not too broad of a question? No, I mean, it's it's a good one. I mean, I mean, the short answer is we spend, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours poring over data and reports and taking information that's available. And we do find one limiting factor is that there's not all of the data you would want. You might want to be able to follow every one of those kind of value chain or cost chain connections to its final conclusion or metrics that you can express in dollar value terms. But where there aren't sufficient data, that's kind of where we have to just remain silent on it in our estimates. We don't include them in the total. But the thing to keep in mind is that we're estimating what we're fairly certain are good, solid numbers based on having originated in peer-reviewed literature and coming from our own application of appropriate methods and so forth. And therefore, 
the costs that we estimate are lowball figures. You know, so the actual cost would be somewhat higher. Like, for example, we haven't included in the cost of unconventional natural gas drilling the effects of dust and other air pollutants on the frequency or the severity of asthma exacerbations and therefore the amount of medicine or the number of hospitalizations that people who are suffering from asthma would experience as a result of reduced air quality. That obviously has human health, is a human health impact. It has economic effects, not only the expenditure on healthcare that people would probably rather spend the money on something else, but it also means they could be losing time at work. And so there's all kinds of costs that are out there, but the causal chain between them is not always sufficiently quantified for us to turn those into actual estimates. Well, this is really interesting in that the sort of conceptual breakthrough that happened late in the 20th century that kind of birthed the environmental movement as we know it was the rise of sort of ecological science and the understanding of the extremely complex ways in which different systems of living things interact with one another and how unpredictable the consequences can be of, of meddling in those systems. And when you take that a step further and say, look, these artificial uh, ecologies of resource allocation that humans have devised actually interface with and mesh with these biological systems in ways that are exponentially more complicated. Obviously, there is, you know, there's an inherent limitation in computational power, I suppose, and, and just the limits of what is ultimately knowable. But, I mean, is it accurate to say that the movement in your field or your subfield is toward a more kind of holistic big picture view that accounts for both economic and ecological factors in an integrated methodical way? Yeah, I hope so. In, in the in the very late 20th century, like in late 80s, early 90s, a new way of thinking about a transdisciplinary approach called ecological economics came on the scene. And it was about the time that I was in graduate school at Virginia Tech. And so, you know, I mostly think of myself as being an environmental economist by training, which is a more standard approach to things. Uh, but ecological economics does reflect that more holistic view. It uses a lot more systems thinking. It is um, explicitly considers the fact that economics should produce outcomes for society, not only that are efficient, so that balancing of benefits and costs that we talked about before, but also that are at an appropriate scale. So how much development overall is too much? Standard economics doesn't really have a way of of telling us that. Standard economics says grow, 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 and doesn't consider the fact that ecosystems, either at a global scale or at a local scale, like in this study, do have a limit. There is a carrying capacity. There are only so many people, so many houses, so many roads, so many natural gas wells and so forth that a system can sustain before it collapses. Ecological economics tries to take that into account. Ecological economics also considers um, just distribution of outcomes as an important goal of society and therefore of economic analysis. So in more recent years, and you know, as I said at the outset, we think of key log economics as being an ecological economics consultancy. And while many of our analyses are, you know, it's sufficient to do a cost benefit analysis and, and you're good to go. We also have in the back of our minds that we are connected to a much larger system when we're doing those. You know, economics is kind of for a hundred years, it, it tried to be like uh, Newtonian physics. Meanwhile, physics you know, went quantum and economics was left behind. And then ecology came along and for another 80 years or so, 
economics ignored that, and now economics is catching up. You know, they were just slow learners in the econ business. In part, you know, it's it is complex. It takes a great deal of effort, a lot of thinking, uh, a lot of discussions, a lot of reading to get to the, what those connections, those implications are. But if you don't ask the questions in the first place, you're always going to be making bad decisions. So I, kind of of necessity, it, it's necessary to carve up geographic spaces into discrete chunks like the Laurel Highlands, which is just one corner of the state of Pennsylvania, one little spot on the map of the United States. It's its own place. It has its own set of issues and concerns. All of these things are, are very distinct and, and uniquely local. Is there a way in which the Laurel Highlands region and the way that you looked at it is is representative or something that can be extrapolated to uh, other regions? What's the connection there? Yeah, I think the definitely the approach, um, you know, on the one hand, coming into this project, we, we used some methods and an, a general overall approach that we have used in several different contexts. In fact, we just three or four weeks ago wrapped up a project looking at the entire Roanoke River Basin with a couple of sub-basin focus areas within that. And we used a similar process. We did a baseline estimation of the ecosystem service value of the whole river system. And then we considered what would happen if there were the introduction of uranium mining. We also considered buffer strips, as we did here in the Laurel Highlands. We considered some other land management changes that would result in higher water quality. And so those methods, you know, the conceptual approach or framework, and to a very limited degree, some of the same data can apply as well. But the method is well-established in a far larger universe than our little consultancy, but we have also used it effectively in, in a number of places, Chesapeake Bay, Delaware Estuary. We've done project-oriented work looking at natural gas transmission pipelines, conservation designations, how they might affect ecosystem services output, that sort of thing. And then on the, the output side, with this project nearing its completion, our hope is that other places, particularly in Pennsylvania, can take what we've done, build on it, you know, improve upon it, and adapt it for their areas. So as, as I mentioned, there are, I believe, six other conservation landscapes in the state where if the state likes this approach or finds this approach useful in terms of figuring out how to allocate funds for remediation or funds for conservation or funds for support for businesses that are trying to leverage and take advantage of all this environmental value that's out there, then um, that'd be great. I mean, this becomes part of the standard practice for the state to look at its conservation lands and conservation landscapes. But it does seem that the conservation landscape program is a really natural sort of framework for something like this, and it's something that already exists. So why not sort of replicate this approach elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So looking at what DCNR, for example, might do with this information, we started with the idea of investing in environmental resources. Given everything that you've found by studying the Laurel Highlands, what kind of projects or other interventions specifically would make the most economic sense for this region would be sort of the best bang for our buck? Well, I don't want to put these in any kind of a rank order, so I'll just kind of go through them in the order in which we looked at them. And we do have to do a a little bit more final calculation to line up the costs and the benefits, particularly, which gets even more complex when you think about when the benefits are going to occur relative to when the costs are going to occur. You know, money out of pocket today that's going to produce value five or 10 years from now is different than something that produces value right away. But with, with that as a caveat, I would say that some of the things that we looked at that do make a lot of sense are to you know, continue the remediation of abandoned mine damage. So to keep those systems running, probably to add new systems 
in targeted places. So one of the ways you can ensure that you're making the best use of public funds is to go to the places that need the most help or the ones where you're most likely to achieve success. So, you know, a finer grain than even the Laurel Highlands evaluation on a stream-by-stream basis or a site-by-site basis. Uh, We did find in our research that people are willing to pay a fair amount of money per household per year to go from severely polluted or moderately polluted water quality to unpolluted uh, water quality. Continuing to address abandoned mine damage, paying for the remediation because that produces value in terms of higher property values. It produces higher water quality. It produces recreational output. You know, dead stream is not producing the biota that the trout need, and therefore it's not producing the trout that the anglers need, therefore not producing the stays in the inns or the fees to the guys or the licensing fees that go to the state. Cleaner water is really the linchpin for a lot of those values. Expanding buffer strips around streams. There are miles and miles of streams in the Laurel Highlands that are impaired due to sedimentation. So when the rain falls and runs downhill, it picks up little bits of soil or tiny, tiny bits of stone or sand and so forth and brings it, some of it, into the stream. And the more natural vegetation there is between the place where the raindrop lands and the stream that it's trying to get to, the less likely it is that it's going to carry dirt along with it because that dirt's going to get stuck to a leaf or a root system or a trunk or just leaf litter that's laying on the forest floor. And so one thing that one could do based on our study results or using our study results as justification or at a minimum food for thought is to say, well, let's go to the most impaired streams and ensure that they have at least you know, 150 feet of natural vegetation on either side of them. You could help landowners make this change from what they have now. If they're planting crops right up to the stream bank or grazing cattle right up to the stream bank, or if they need to some help with reforestation because there had been a recent timber harvest or something like that, you can have cost shares. That, As a, an economist, I would justify on the basis of you're producing public value. And so the public can invest in those improvements. And those public benefits for like an agricultural buffer strip are cleaner water, certainly. And the cleaner water is a benefit for recreation. It's a benefit for municipal water supply because you're taking cleaner water in and therefore you have to do less to treat it. It's also an aesthetic value. It's habitat for migratory songbirds. It's habitat for, you know, ducks. It's another travel corridor for deer. And so, you know, the hunters and the birders and the fishers and everybody get a benefit. And a really good riparian buffer will provide shade that keeps the water temperature down. That means better fishing, which means more revenue in the tourism economy and so on and so forth. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, if you go out to fish 30 years from now and you've got that nice shaded stream, whereas before it had been silted and full of pollutants and and sediment runoff and so forth, you don't know that and you don't stop by the farmer's house and drop a five in his mailbox, but we pay taxes and we pay for licensing fees. And so you use some of those funds to help the farmer make that initial investment that's going to pay off down the line for everybody. And there's some appeal in the fact that this is really a pretty low tech, I would think low cost relatively solution that, as you said, also beautifies the landscape and, you know, is, is all around appealing on many levels. Yeah, well, it's so low tech. It's it's how nature has been cleaning the water for untold millennia before people started exactly. you know, plowing the land. So it's, it's, that is, you know, a great example of 
ecosystem service benefits for like recreating or reinstalling a natural system that you can just let it go and it'll do its thing and you don't have to pay to maintain it. It's, you don't have to change the filters. It's, the trees are making their own filters. Well, there is so much in this report. We have just barely scraped the surface of it, but when it's available and it's fully finalized, published form, it'll be on the PEC website and we'll, uh, we'll put it out on social media as well. Looking forward to that Excellent. and really appreciate your time today. Uh, Dr. Spencer Phillips, one of the co-authors, thanks for dropping by Pennsylvania Legacies. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Again, the full title of that study we've been discussing today is Return on Environment, Value of Clean Water in the Laurel Highlands. The report's undergoing final revisions as we speak, and it's due out in July. Of course, when that happens, you'll hear about it on this show, and you'll be able to find it on the PEC website at pecpa.org. Along with the Foundation for Pennsylvania Watersheds and the Community Foundation for the Alleghenies, DCNR was a major funder of that research. It also got funding and other support from a long list of contributors, including the Mountain Watershed Association, Loyal Hannah Watershed Association, Somerset Conservation District, Forbes Trail and Chestnut Ridge chapters of Trout Unlimited, Castleman River Watershed Association, Jacobs Creek Watershed Association, Lincoln Highway Heritage Area, and Cambria County. We'll note that PEC also played a role in this project by way of our involvement in DCNR's Laurel Highlands Conservation Landscape Program, which we discussed toward the end of that interview. It's one of two landscapes in which PEC plays a leadership role. We're also in the Pocono Forest and Waters Conservation Landscape up in northeastern Pennsylvania. You can learn about both of those initiatives in the watershed section of our website, which is, of course, at PECPA.org. Pennsylvania Legacies is a bi-weekly production of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council produced out of our Western Regional Office in Pittsburgh. Although we serve the whole state with program work in watersheds, trails and recreation, energy and climate policy, community development, and much more, you can connect with us on Facebook and on Twitter. We're at PECPA. Catch up on back episodes of the podcast on our website or subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Player.fm, and many others, uh, pretty much anywhere you can get a podcast, you will find Pennsylvania Legacies. Or you can just stream us via the website at pecpa.org. Look for the Audio Room tab. We'll be back with another podcast at the end of the month. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and thanks for listening. <laughs>